Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. In today's case, the victim was extremely close to death and had accepted his fate as inevitable. He saw no path towards escaping his predicament. His hope was eroded slowly over time. Domestic abuse is a serious problem that affects millions of people around the world. An abuser isn't described with a gender, a body type, or a race. An abuser is just that, an abuser. While it is often thought of as a problem that primarily affects women, men can also be victims of domestic abuse as well. However, men are less likely to report domestic abuse than women. There are a number of reasons why someone stays suffering day after day. Domestic abuse is a deeply personal and traumatic experience, and just like women, many men may feel ashamed or embarrassed to admit that they have been abused. This shame and embarrassment can be compounded by societal attitudes that view men as strong and resilient, and that may view men who have been abused as weak or less than masculine. As a result of these stereotypical gender beliefs, some men may be hesitant to report abuse out of fear of being judged or criticized by others. Another reason why someone may not report domestic abuse is fear of retaliation. In many cases, domestic abuse is committed by someone the victim knows and trusts, such as a partner or a family member. Someone who has been abused may be afraid of retaliation from their abuser if they report the abuse, and they may worry that speaking out will only make the situation worse. This fear can be particularly acute in cases where the abuser has threatened the victim or has a history of violence. A third reason why men may not report domestic abuse is concern about the potential consequences of speaking out. Men who have been abused may be worried about losing their job, their home, or their relationships if they report the abuse. They may also be concerned about the legal consequences of reporting abuse, such as the potential for their abuser to be arrested or charged with a crime. These concerns can make it difficult for a victim of domestic abuse to seek help even if they are desperate for support. And finally, some men may not report domestic abuse because they do not realize that they are actually being abused. Domestic abuse can take many forms, and it's not always obvious or visible to others. Men who are being abused may not recognize the signs of abuse, or they may believe that their abuse is their fault or that there is something that they can do to change the relationship and end the abuse. 
In other instances, men might be isolated or controlled by their abuser, and they may not have access to information or resources that could help them understand their predicament. Such as today's case, which began with coercive control and slowly moved into isolation, and finally, life-threatening physical violence. Another tactic used in coercive control is manipulation. The abuser may manipulate the victim's thoughts, feelings, and actions through gaslighting, which involves making the victim doubt their own reality and perception of events. This could be when an abuser does something abusive, but then denies it or downplays it. At first, the abuser may also use flattery or charm to manipulate the victim into staying into the relationship, making them believe that they are loved and needed. In today's case, the abuse didn't start in the beginning of the relationship. It began slowly over time with flattery and kind suggestions. It was on June 3, 2012, when 16-year-old Alex Skeel met 17-year-old Jordan Wirth while attending upper school in the United Kingdom. For Alex, this was the first time a girl had been interested in him, and her interest in him intoxicated him. He couldn't wait for all of his friends and family to meet this beautiful girl who had captivated his attention. In the beginning, their relationship felt easy and destined by the hands of fate, with neither finding anything other than perfection in the other's eyes. Alex grew up with a twin brother with close family and grandparents who adored him. Alex and his brother Luke had become quite famous in England. They were twins born premature and weighing at just two pounds each. But the preemies eventually grew stronger and thrived, eventually becoming child models. Before meeting Jordan, Alex's interest involved going to concerts with friends, football, playing video games, and spending time with his beloved grandfather, with whom he was extremely close. When Alex was hurt or upset, he immediately sought comfort and guidance from his grandfather. Now, Jordan also grew up in a close family with a younger brother she adored and parents and grandparents who doted on her natural talents. Jordan was very smart, excelled in school, and was a talented gymnast. She had delicate classic features and was objectively described as quite beautiful. And together, Alex and Jordan made a really cute-looking couple. Alex couldn't wait for his family and close friends to meet Jordan, and for his sake, they tried really hard to like her. However, she made it extremely difficult to do so. At first, Jordan would test out her ability to control Alex with small and helpful comments. She told him she didn't think that he looked good in the color gray, so he immediately stopped wearing it. Next, she told him that she didn't like the way his hair was cut, so he began cutting and styling it the way that she liked. He loved that Jordan cared so much about the small things and was happy to accommodate her request. Eventually, her demands became absurd and outrageous, yet he continued to accommodate them. One of their biggest areas of contention was Jordan's unhinged jealousy. Jordan was convinced that he was constantly cheating on her and would demand he allow her to go through his phone. She would block his friends and all females, including a close family friend's daughter. Jordan became convinced that this girl, who was only 15 at the time, was after Alex. 
She would take his phone and send the girl terrible messages, telling her that she was fat, ugly, and he could never like her. Then she would delete the messages, eventually demanding that Alex block her from his phone. And instead of being alarmed at Jordan's outrageous behavior, he became alarmed at how he was going to hide all of these things that she said and did to his family. She would repeatedly smash and destroy his phones, leaving him to explain to his family once again why he didn't have a phone. She also did things to turn Alex against his family. In one instance, the entire family went to see a live showing of The Lion King. And during intermission, Jordan disappeared. She watched from a hidden area while they became upset trying to find her. And she didn't think that his family looked hard enough for her, proving her theory that they didn't like her very much. In reality, she was trying her best to separate Alex from his family. Eventually, when she came out of hiding, she laughed and thought it was a hilarious prank. For Alex's 18th birthday party, she refused to attend because she wanted the daughter of his parents' close family friends to be excluded from the invite list. He wanted Jordan at his side along with his twin brother while they celebrated their joint milestone birthday. Eventually, Alex convinced Jordan to attend, insisting that he didn't even know the girl would be in attendance. Of course, she was in attendance, and this drove Jordan into an uncontrollable fit of anger. She screamed and yelled at Alex's friend, telling her she was ugly and fat, and Alex would never want her and never love her. She also tried to physically attack her before being separated by other people in attendance. Alex's mother demanded that she leave the party. She told Alex if he didn't go with her, then the relationship was over. Alex loved Jordan, but realized that her behavior wasn't normal and took this opportunity to end their relationship. Over the next few weeks, Jordan tried very hard to get Alex back under her control, but he wasn't having it. He was truly done this time, and Jordan blamed his parents for her loss of control. That's when she showed up on his mom's doorstep claiming to be pregnant. And they all assumed that she was lying, and this was just another ploy to get him back under her control. He told her that he didn't believe her. However, he said if she really was pregnant, he would of course be responsible for his child. For the next year, Alex lived his life. He began coaching football, which was his dream job, and went about life. A year later, Alex's mom got a text from Jordan. She asked her if she was ready to meet her grandchild. Jordan had given birth to a beautiful baby boy she named TJ, and who was the splitting image of Alex. His mother encouraged him to meet his son and to find a way to co-parent with Jordan. Alex was afraid to be alone with Jordan, so he brought his grandfather along, the man he always sought comfort in as a child whenever he needed reassurance. Alex and his grandfather went to Jordan's parents' house and they met TJ. Of course, it was love at first sight, and Alex knew that no matter what, he had to be a part of his son's life. While he was sure he wanted TJ in his life, he wasn't so sure he wanted Jordan back in his life. Alex's family had fallen in love with TJ, and they believed that motherhood had matured Jordan. When it seemed like Jordan had changed, they all supported Alex's decision to rekindle their relationship. They believed a two-parent household would be ideal for raising TJ, assuming it was a healthy environment. Unfortunately, Jordan couldn't keep up the pretense of mental health for very long. 
and she began trying to control Alex, changing the password on his phone and only allowing him to use it in her presence. Again, Jordan began accusing Alex of flirting with other girls, and one of her favorite tactics was to gaslight him. She would tell him that she was contacted on social media from girls that Alex had cheated on her with. Of course, none of it was true, but she wouldn't let it go until he admitted it was true and apologized for it. Gaslighting in the context of domestic abuse can be extremely damaging. It causes the victim to question their own perceptions and even their own sanity. Jordan would quite often use the gaslighting technique to control and manipulate Alex. It doesn't matter if Alex truly believed it or not. What mattered to Jordan was that she was able to manipulate him into admitting something that was contrary to reality. Jordan weaponized her jealousy against Alex. By being possessive and controlling, she was able to limit Alex's free will and autonomy. She sought to control everything about him, down to his private thoughts and his feelings. The final straw for Jordan was when the daughter of the family friend was once again at Alex's house. She made accusations against the girl and called her horrific names until Alex's mom insisted she leave her home and move back in with her parents. She packed up TJ and all of her things into her car and told Alex if he didn't leave with her that night, she would never allow him to see TJ again. The next time Alex would see his family would be two years later in nearly 10 days from death. Alex and Jordan and baby TJ moved in with Jordan's parents in Bedfordshire. Alex worked and Jordan went to school at the University of Hertfordshire, where she planned to study to become a teacher. To family and friends, Jordan was a dream come true. She loved animals, volunteered at shelters, and raised money for starving children in Africa. Despite everything going well in her relationship, she was still concerned that Alex might go back to his family. She knew in order to truly have what she wanted, she needed to remove his family as a source of support. She closed down Alex's Facebook account and opened a new account that only she controlled. The profile photo was a photo of Alex and Jordan kissing. When his friends or family would direct message the account, Jordan would respond pretending to be Alex. She would tell them that she hated them and never wanted to hear from them again. And at this point, Jordan also had control of Alex's phone. When his grandfather texted, she texted back pretending to be Alex. She told him that all he needed was Jordan and his son and wanted nothing to do with his family ever again. And obviously, they never for a moment believed it was Alex responding, but they knew they had to wait for Alex to come to them when he was finally ready. At one point, Alex's mother's best friend decided she had had enough. She knew that Alex and Jordan had eventually moved into their own apartment and decided that she would go and look for them since she knew the name of the street. She knew that Jordan loved elephants, and when she saw an elephant in a window, she knew that she had found the right flat. She knocked on the door demanding to speak to Alex. Through the door, she told him that his mother worried constantly and missed him and wanted to reach out. Through the door, Alex was instructed by Jordan to tell her if she or his family came by that he would call the police on them for harassment. He told her that he hated his family and wanted nothing to do with them, all at Jordan's insistence. Later, he would say that this was one of his darkest moments. But things were about to get darker for Alex. He and Jordan moved out of her parents' home. 
Jordan had even more control over him now. She demanded he quit his job because it was time away from her that she didn't control. She insisted that he come to class with her and wait in the car while she attended university classes. Occasionally, she would allow him to sit in the library on a computer. However, he couldn't erase his computer history and she would go over it to make sure that he didn't try to contact his family or friends. Jordan's emotional abuse was gradual until she knew she could get Alex to say and do anything that she demanded. But she still couldn't control his thoughts, and that was the next level of control that she demanded from him. Because of this insidious nature of emotional abuse, it can be difficult for victims to recognize when it's happening. Once an abuser has broken down the victim's ability to trust their own perceptions, the victim is more likely to stay in the relationship, even willing to allow the abuse to escalate. In Alex's case, this is exactly what happened. Jordan began keeping a hairbrush in her car, and she would use it to strike Alex if he failed to answer her in ways that she liked, or if he refused to take part in her repeated interrogation sessions where she would accuse him of looking at other girls. She would strike him with the hairbrush anywhere she could reach while driving. In one incident, she struck him in the mouth, cracking and loosening a tooth. When she refused to allow him to seek medical treatment, he had no other choice but to pull the tooth out himself. Alex was constantly covered in bruises on his hands and face where she would hit him with the brush. And in another incident, Alex and Jordan took TJ to a winter wonderland fair. However, once they arrived, Jordan once again accused Alex of communicating with other girls. She told him that while taking TJ to the bathroom, he had made contact with girls and DM'd her through his Facebook account, an account that Alex still had no control over. It didn't matter if the absurd allegations didn't make sense or were implausible. What mattered was that Jordan believed them and therefore Alex had to admit to them. She demanded that they leave and told him she would only stay under one condition. The condition is that he swallowed an entire bottle of sleeping pills. This way, she could trust he would be too incoherent to lust after other girls and to try to make contact with them. Alex agreed and didn't remember how he got home that night or any of the time they spent together at the park. Eventually, Jordan began waking Alex up in the middle of the night with a glass bottle she kept at her bedside. She would wake him up by hitting him over the head and demanded to know what he had been dreaming about, insisting that he was calling out other girls' names in his sleep. She would allow him to then fall back asleep, only to wake him up again by hitting him over the head with a bottle, again demanding answers to her questions. In the morning, Alex would be shocked at the face staring back at him in the mirror. His eyes would have blood in them, and his entire face would be covered in varying stages of healing bruises, underneath new fresh ones. He had cuts and scrapes all over his head and his ears, all while she wouldn't allow Alex to eat. He had lost almost 50 pounds and had dropped below the weight of 100 pounds. Each day, he prayed the next day would be better than the last, but things only got worse. That's when the neighbors began to realize that something was very wrong in the flat where Alex and Jordan lived. 
they would hear the screams and pleading at all hours of the night, which they assumed was Alex abusing Jordan. But then they began to take a closer look and realized it was Alex in the garden with his son covered in bruises. It was Alex taking TJ to the park, and it was Alex who appeared to be the abused primary caregiver for his son. That's when the police began arriving at the door. Jordan would usually answer the door, bruise-free, and insisted all is well. Now, eventually, Jordan broke her glass bottle over Alex's head, but that didn't stop her from finding a new weapon. That's when she began going to bed with a hammer. She would use the hammer on Alex's head and demanded that he wake up and tell her what he had been thinking about. With the introduction of the hammer, his injuries began to escalate, but the hammer was her nighttime weapon. During the day, Jordan began using a long serrated bread knife to whack him on the knees and the wrist, once even hitting down to the bone. Despite the blood and the severity of his injuries, she refused to allow Alex to be treated at a hospital. He had to use gauze wrap and homemade bandages to stop the bleeding. Once she began cutting him, she escalated her psychological torture as well. It wasn't enough to have Alex's 100% compliance. She had to control his feelings and emotions as well. One day she told him that his beloved grandfather had died. Alex was devastated, but knew he wasn't allowed to show any emotion. She taunted him, telling him that his family didn't want him at his grandfather's funeral. He didn't take the bait and insisted that he didn't want to go. However, he was beginning to show emotion, which enraged Jordan. She only wanted him to have feelings for her and their son. A few hours later, she laughed and told him he was pathetic for crying over his grandfather. That's when she told him that she had been lying and his grandfather was fine. Despite the violent state of their relationship, Jordan believed this was a good time for them to have a second child. She had just graduated from the University of Hertfordshire with a degree in fine arts with plans to become a teacher. Within a few weeks, she was pregnant again and decided that Alex should now sleep on the floor. Alex thought that this was a great idea because it meant that he wouldn't be within reach of her hammer. His optimism was short-lived because that is when Jordan decided to escalate the abuse. Alex reported that she always had a boiling kettle of water available at all times. In an interview Alex gave to the BBC, he stated, quote, I'll never forget the moment that Jordan first poured scalding water over me. She backed me into a corner of a room in the home we shared in Bedfordshire, holding a boiling kettle. We've been together for three years, and what had started with small things, her telling me not to wear the color gray or that she didn't like my hairstyle, had turned into a nine-month campaign of physical abuse. I was scared of her, end quote. For years, Jordan had used coercive control and hits with her handy car brush to keep Alex in line. But it was only when they lived alone without the prying eyes of either sets of parents that the true sadistic side of Jordan was revealed. And by that time, Alex thought leaving was a hopeless dream. He worried that if he left, she wouldn't allow him to see their children, something she always threatened. Jordan had also threatened to kill his family if he ever left her beginning with his beloved grandfather, whom she cruelly pretended was dead one afternoon, just to see if he would express emotion or grief against her wishes. 
For nine solid months, Alex lived in a torture chamber of emotional, psychological, and physical abuse. To this day, Alex can still recall watching the first droplet of scalding water hit his skin in slow motion and the skin blistering, curdling, and even peeling away. The pain was excruciating, and his screams of horror hit the neighbor's ears as well. After being burned, Alex would beg Jordan to allow him to sit in a bath of cold water. He described it as instant relief, but the relief was always short-lived. After an hour of relief, she would demand he get out of the bath and burn him again with more scalding water. This pattern would repeat for hours until he passed out from the pain. Sometimes she would wake him up by pouring scalding water on his back, which resulted in second and third degree burns over his back and shoulders. Alex told the BBC in an exclusive interview that, quote, it was all about the mind games with her. She wanted control over all aspects of my life. I remember lying in the bath with no clothes on. It looked like I was in an oven cooking. My skin was peeling off. It was absolutely horrible. Alex tried his best not to scream out in pain because this would just further enrage Jordan and result in worse injuries. However, his plaintive cries to please stop and leave me alone couldn't be ignored by the neighbors. On occasion, they could hear her tell Alex to quote, just go and die already, no one cares about you. During one incident, the police came and they saw Alex's condition and insisted that he be taken to the hospital for treatment. Jordan had begun hitting him on the wrist with a large kitchen knife, once coming very close to severing an artery. His entire wrist had been opened, and the police took him to the hospital. When he was asked how he got the injuries, he would insist that he was self-harming. Jordan would tell the police that she didn't know why he self-harmed, and she found it annoying. While at the hospital, the doctors wanted to perform a surgery on him to repair some of the injured tendons. That's when Jordan appeared at the hospital, and against doctors' orders, she insisted he come home with her. The nurses begged him not to leave with her, and a social worker asked him if he was sure he would be safe, to which he replied that he would be safe. Later, Alex would admit that would have been the perfect time to get some help and explain what was happening to him, but he feared for his children. He feared that Jordan would be able to convince the police he was lying and he wouldn't be believed, so he continued to remain silent. It's important to note that one in six men will experience domestic abuse during their lifetimes, but only one in 20 will ever report it or seek help. Shortly after his daughter Iris was born, the neighbors began to phone the police quite often, reporting their loud domestic disturbances. Help for Alex finally came after a police officer who had been to the home many times previously went the extra step to ensure that the abuse stopped. After another call by the neighbors, the officer saw Alex on June 3rd, 2017, and thought he didn't have long to live. And he would turn out to be absolutely correct in that assessment. Later, a doctor would say that Alex's body was already shutting down and was at most 10 days away from death. When the officer came inside, he noticed a sink filled with blood and a blood-soaked towel wrapped around Alex's arm. 
Once again, Alex insisted that he was self-harming, and once again, the police officer doubted him. He said he wouldn't even make eye contact with him and was looking at the ground. The officer told Alex he had no other choice than to be taken to the hospital for emergency medical care. On the officer's body cam footage, you can see Jordan hugging Alex as if she was concerned about his condition. She is seen whispering to him, telling him not to go to the hospital. And because of his injuries, he can only comfort her and hug her with one of his arms. If you didn't know better, you would think it was a loving, intimate moment. Jordan, in a shy and polite tone, asked if Alex would be kept overnight and when he would be returning. Sergeant Ed Finn told her that after Alex received care, she would be notified if that's what he wanted. He told him the biggest concern was getting him emergency care and not returning him back home. Sergeant Finn knew if he didn't get Alex to tell the truth, he may not survive another incident. He sat him in the police car and again tried to get Alex to tell the truth, but again, Alex denied he was being harmed. Finally, he turned off his body camera and told Alex that it was just the two of them. He said that, we need to get you help, we need to get Jordan help, and we need to get your children help. That may have been what finally got through to Alex, because it was then that he finally admitted the horrific abuse he had been enduring the last year. Jordan was arrested, and during her police interrogation, she began to try to take control of the interview, asking about Alex and when she could speak with him. And she was told that there was a protective order against her from seeing or speaking with Alex. At first, she denied she had abused him, instead insisting he had harmed himself. Eventually, in a shy, quiet voice, she minimized her part in his injuries. She showed the interrogator how she lightly tapped Alex over the head with a hammer. She also insisted that all of his second and third degree burns were accidental. As the interview continued, she became aware that Alex was no longer under her control. She finally admitted to most of the injuries, but insisted that Alex told her he hated his family and he never wanted to see them. Police showed her the messages she had sent to his family and friends while pretending to be Alex, and she finally admitted to impersonating him. Jordan was eventually charged with 17 counts of criminal acts, including wounding with intent, causing grievous bodily harm with intent, and controlling or coercive behavior in an intimate relationship. On April 13, 2018, Jordan decided to plead guilty and was given two seven-year sentences to be served concurrently with an additional six-month sentence for coercive behavior. She would be the first female in the UK to be convicted of that charge. Alex was given a permanent restraining order against Jordan for life and custody of his two children. After serving just four years of her seven-year sentence, Jordan was released from prison in January of 2022. She is in a new relationship and has a Facebook timeline filled with links to women who are abused and even one entry for a man who allegedly burns himself. It looks like Jordan is still trying to control and change the narrative. As a result of Jordan's abuse, Alex now suffers from a condition called hydrocephalus, where fluid builds up on his brain. He is permanently scarred all over his body. He has worked hard to rebuild his life, and he currently coaches a youth football team. 
That's soccer for those of us in the U.S. Alex also works as an ambassador for the Mankind Initiative, a domestic violence charity with the mission to remove the stigma around men and domestic violence victims. He also participated in a BBC documentary called I Was Abused by My Girlfriend, which can be found on YouTube. If you or a loved one is suffering from domestic violence, there are resources available. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached 24-7 at 800-799-7233 or by text at 88788. This case was a case suggestion by one of our listeners. Thanks for sending us your case suggestions. It's so interesting to hear from you because we have listeners from all over the world. That's really awesome. We also want to send a special thank you to those that support us through Patreon. Thanks for supporting us through this year. This week, we want to welcome a few last-minute toppings to our salad. We have Jure and Tyler. Enjoy the ad-free listens, bonus content, and early access to our weekly episodes. Have an amazing rest of 2022, everyone, and cheers to a new year. We're really looking forward to sharing some more cases with you and being a part of spreading awareness through cases like this one. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we will be back with more next week.